You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and I have a special guest for you, Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Boltwright. She's the author of The Last Things We Talk About, Your Guide to End-of-Life Transitions. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Just for a little bit of context, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in, um, actually, I was born in Rockville Center, New York, which is on the upper side of the Long Island Sound there, and uh, then moved to Pittsburgh, back to New York. And the majority of my life, I grew up in California, in a place called Torrance, California, Redondo Beach area. And uh, a lot of, many happy memories there. It was by the beach, so we had lots of time in the ocean. And um, eventually then uh, moved up to San Francisco after I was married. So been here pretty much in the Bay Area for the most of the time. And two, two shots, one to Hawaii for five years, which is very exciting, and another 10 years in Portland. But mostly the Bay Area is my home. Yeah. I find that many people who write and work in end-of-life care, mm-hmm. I find that in most cases they're driven there by life experiences. So could you take us back on your first experience of death as a reality in your life? Yeah, that's that's a really important story. I was 12 years old and my grandfather, who was called Nampa, died in New York. And so the adventure was that we had to get from California to New York by train. So we had a lot of time to uh, experience what it felt like to have someone die in our family. And as a family, we talked a great deal. And even at the exchange of trains, you know, we were still talking all the way into New York. And then the funeral happened. And for a 12-year-old, it was a pretty mysterious thing because you know this person as a child and you remember all the fun things about them. They told stories and he was a Winnie the Pooh fan. So we grew up on Winnie the Pooh and um, (laughs) a very proper gentleman, wore three-piece suits to breakfast and expected everyone to have proper manners and so on. So those are the memories I had of him. But to see him in a casket with an open casket and, and uh, dead was, was quite traumatic for me. And I think that was something that kind of sat with me for a while. But then I, you know, because we're uh, Christian believers, we knew there was a heaven and we knew that that was not really Nampa anymore. Nampa was in heaven. So I was able to kind of make that connection. But it was, it was pretty traumatic knowing that someone I love so much had been very vital in my life. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden he was gone. So we had a lot of grieving to do, my dad in particular. And um, I think they did a pretty good job of explaining all of that. So I was able to kind of get through it, but still still a, a very, very uh, distinct memory. So at 12 years, you said the experience, uh, that death was traumatic. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how you were helped to process your grief? Well, I think um, having my family together was the first important thing because we were able to share stories and that processing of stories and having a good laugh and remembering all the good was very helpful because, you know, when you see a body who's dead in a casket, it's really difficult. But when you tell the stories, then that person becomes alive. And in a way, that was what I was able to do in terms of processing, just tell the good stories Remember to comfort each other, which we did in our family very well. My mom's a nurse, sister's a nurse. So 
we had a lot of people that could explain some of the medical things, but more importantly, just to say he's no longer here. His body couldn't work anymore. You know, as a 12 year old, that's about as, as high as you want to go. Mm-hmm. That, that helped me to kind of process to say, you know, when you're an older person, it's not as easy as you can live. So we die and that's okay because God will take care of us. So that was kind of the through line I had in terms of processing and just a very loving and nurturing family that cared about each other. I mean, at the end, after the service, we decided to go to see a Broadway play. I mean, in terms of <laughs> unleashing all of our endorphins and trying to get through that, we, we got to see Camelot with Julie Andrews and quite a wonderful cast. So that uh, was a special blessing to us. They They were able to kind of make that transference from deep grief to now let's be a family and enjoy something together. And I think that was very helpful. Yeah. Your book, The Last Things We Talk About, Your Guide to Mm -hmm. End of Life Transitions. What Mm -hmm. was the motivation for that book? Well, my own family, um, primarily my father's death. And then a year later, my mother's death. And then a few years later after that, my sister-in-law's death. It was quite a, you know, succession of, of difficult times. And I realized that a lot of people simply aren't organized enough that when they die, they leave the family this huge treasure hunt. And that was true of my dad. I mean, he had like, I don't know, 80 boxes of stuff. We didn't know where to start. We didn't know what to pick. We didn't know what was still current and what wasn't. He had he had saved everything. He wasn't any kind of a hoarder. He just liked to collect. Mm. So it took us well into six months to get everything settled. And fortunately, my brother-in-law was, um, you know, the, the executor because the four of us were just too too tied up in, in grief about all the, the details. So he did the work and it was it was a lengthy process. And then with my mom, she also was a collector. I mean, she had a, literally a boutique of gifts that she never gave away. She got them, but then she kind of kept them as a boutique and we had all of those to sort out and so on. And then my sister-in-law, who... Um, died of cancer very early in life and a very traumatic situation with a young son with special needs. So all of those really were the catalyst for the book to say, how can we do this better? How can we organize our life in such a way that when we die, our heirs don't have to go through this? Because it was very traumatic. I mean, it's traumatic enough that you have a death, but then you have to do all the paperwork and the sorting and the you know, estate planning and the taxes and everything else. And that's just huge. So if you're grieving, it's very difficult to go through that. And so this book was basically um, put together because I wanted people to have an easier time of it. There are ways to organize our life that make that whole process a lot easier. And so that's what it was about, basically to sort out the tough stuff, separate that out from the celebration stuff, set that out from the practical issues. And so the book is kind of, Uh, build in such a way that you learn about yourself, you learn about what your family dynamics are, you have the hospital universe to deal with, you have the dying process, and after death, and then finally grief. And so all of those chapters cover those things in a way that I think is organizationally easy. And uh, most people that have read it just um, find it so much easier to go through the end of life process. Yeah. And in chapter one, you talk about exploring and expressing meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Could you break that chapter for us? Sure. 
Well, you know, I, I tell people that, you know, it's kind of like, how do you de describe where you are? And I think of it as a star on the elevator. I work in a huge hospital of a thousand beds. And whenever I'm disoriented or I don't know where I'm going, I start at the elevator and I see the little star and I say, that's where I am. And I look at another place where I'm going and I say, okay, now I have a path to get there. So the whole idea of the first is to explain to yourself what is meaningful, what is purposeful, what is your mission in life? What are the things that matter? I mean, if you would die tomorrow, what would you want your family to know? So I encourage people in this chapter to write their story, write their story, because your story dies with you. Mm. If you write your story out, then people know all those fun facts about, you know, Lake Winnipesaukee in the summer. And what you did when you traveled in the country sedan wagon across country and your sister wore gloves because she was afraid to touch the rocks. I mean, things. Yeah. And, and that story then gives you life that when you die, they read that and they say, well, this was an amazing person. So I always encourage them to read, you know, to write the story and you can do it in, in increments. You know, there's a group called StoryWorth. It allows you to do one small chapter a week. You know, you write two paragraphs and then the next week you write two paragraphs. And at the end of the year, they put a book together and that's your life. I mean, that's just a wonderful, easy, um, incremental way to do it. The other thing I encourage people um, to do is to identify circles of support mm. because a lot of us have a fairly isolated life. And we know that the people that are close to us, our BFFs, you know, our best friends, are kind of that first circle or second circle of people. And then concentrically, you work out from there, maybe family members that are not so close, but you do have people that are willing to do jobs and tasks. And so that's kind of your third circle. And the fourth circle is the other family members that maybe you're not close to. Maybe it's your doctor and your, you know, your lawyer and the people that you pay for appointments and so on. And the fifth circle is everybody else. Mm. And I always encourage people to think about people outside of these concentric circles because there may be people you don't want to get notified. There may be, a, you know, someone that you've had a difficult time with, and there are people that you don't want to have in your centric, concentric circles of support. So that just kind of sets the groundwork, your story, and then your, your people that will support you in the time you get to end of life. And um, that gives you meaning and purpose. It gives you some idea of the things that matter to you, and you express those things to the people in your circles. Yeah. So, I mean, you said you start with writing your story. What is mm -hmm. the importance of writing your story down? What therapeutic well, value yeah. uh, does that normally bring from your experience? Tremendous therapeutic value. I mean, it allows you to process things, good and bad. I mean, one of the things in StoryWorth and some of the other groups is they allow you to say, what was the hardest thing you ever had to do? Mm. Who were the people you didn't get along with? And who were your best friends in high school? Yeah. Um, you know, so they allow you the possibility of processing things that weren't just perfect. And that makes you more of a person because they want to know that it wasn't all hunky-dory. You know, maybe you had a sad experience like I did at 12 or Maybe you had a miscarriage or something really traumatic. And it's okay to talk about that. So people know that you're real. You're not just Mary Sunshine or whatever. You, you've had experiences. I say in, in many different circles, I say God never wastes a thing. Yeah. That every yeah. single experience builds on the next so that you become the complete person that you are. And you're not ashamed of that. You're willing to share those kind of stories so people see the three dimensions and not just one dimension.
So the story becomes almost like an element of life review, not Absolutely. just yeah, not just your story in general, but uh, life review as a powerful therapeutic tool in end of life. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's one of the things that many of these you know apps and groups do that they really try to pull out the full dimension of that person. So you have an opportunity to say this was hard, and this is how I got through it, and this is what I learned from it. So then the people that are reading that will say, wow, that's why that happened. Or that's why she responded or he responded this way, because I see what the life story was like. I mean, I'm thinking of my mom who grew up in an orphanage and um, she was put there during the depression because her mother couldn't afford to keep her at home. And she had three children and the person that she had married abandoned her. And so it's just a very complex story. Mm. And I understand where some of her anger came from because of all the rejection and the sadness that went on. So when you understand the backstory, you get a little bit better picture of the emotional climate that you're working with. In chapter two, you talk about making wishes known to loved ones. Mm-hmm. Could you break that down a little bit for us? Sure. Well, I think the main thing is to have the conversation. We all live in different kinds of families and the dynamics are as different as A to Z. So part of it is how will you talk to your family when there is a critical mass, like a a chronic disease, an end of life issue, um, you know, stage four cancer, that kind of thing. And I talk about different ways to approach the conversation project is one that a lot of people use because it has six different modules and it gives you really a map on how to talk with your family about hard things. There are many cultures where talking about death, dying, sickness is not acceptable. It's actually considered a dishonor. Mm. And so Mm. how do you approach those people with these tough subjects without dishonoring the family or letting them feel as though something has failed? And so the conversation project helps with that. And, you know, there's also games and things that you can use, like uh, Go Wish or things of that sort. And all of those things help us to get the conversation started because that's where we get the advanced directive done. That's where we get the HIPAA forms done and so on. Without that conversation, the family would normally be in the dark and they don't know what your wishes are. So you need to have that conversation. And then I think with that, um, we also talk about aging and aging in place and what is it going to look like in terms of a continuum of care. So chapter two really goes through you know, everything from outpatient care to inpatient care to long-term care and continuing care retirement communities, because these are all things that you would want your family to know. If you're not able to speak for yourself, you want them to have a plan in place so that you will have the care that you need. And, you know, assisted living facilities and things like um, memory care, rehab centers, any of those things are part of your plan. And explaining that to your family and what you wish will help a lot. Many Americans um, want to remain in their home. So what does that look like? That means if you are debilitated and unable to walk or ambulate, you may need some help at home. And what is that going to look like in terms of care and caregivers? Is it going to be family? Is it going to be a mixture of family and other people? And then we get to things like, you know, end of life, hospice care, and so on. Um, And whether or not we're going to have enough money for long-term care. This is a big debate right now because the cost of long-term care is exorbitant and people that wait until they're 60 are looking at a thousand up a month to pay for that long-term care insurance. But then you start translating that 
to what it would cost to have a caregiver in the house. And sometimes it's it's comparable. So all of those things need to be talked about because there may not be resources. And so where do we go? Do we go to the county? Do we go to IHSS or any of these other places? So we need to have a plan in terms of how that long-term care will be um, you know, established. And then, you know, the other thing is, you know, you got stuff. <laughs> I always talk about stuff, you know. I mean, my gosh, you know, you've got your possessions, you've got things that you probably need to kind of relegate to somebody else. Is there a list of things? Do you have an estate sale in mind or a garage sale? I do talk a great deal about that because I remember my grandmother, one of my favorite stories is she was uh, going into assisted living and she didn't want to keep her stuff. So she made this huge list of every possession she had other than a bed and I think maybe a chair. And she gave it to all her grandchildren. Children said, pick three and we'll make sure you get them. So she loaded up her you know, U-Haul truck, had one of her grandsons drive it around the country and everybody got their favorite things. So the idea is that she died happy because people got the things they wanted. There was no argument whatsoever. And she died extremely thankful that everything had been distributed and there was no legal matters. And I call it Santa Claus on four wheels. I mean, she really did an incredible blessing for us. And I still have those things, the dresser and the secretary and the, and the you know, hand, handheld brush and things of that sort. And I'm reminded of her every time I see it. So it was a loving gift. Anyway, then, you know, we talked about stories and so on and making sure that the story is written and, and or verbal. You know, some people do videos and some people do something written down. But whatever it is, don't forget to do it because it in, really enhances the family's memory of you. And also, let me just say, as someone who's done 400 memorials, it really helps the person that's doing the memorial because now we've got a story to tell. Now we know who this person is and how they fit into the family. So yeah. that's kind of that's kind of chapter two. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, our guest is Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Botright. Her book is The Last Things We Talk About, Your Guide to End-of-Life Transitions. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Behrman. We continue our conversation with Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Botwright. I find as you were talking about chapter one and two, there's really a lot of practical wisdom that is needed, especially for people who are dealing with end-of-life issues. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I'll really encourage you to get this book. So in chapter three, you talk about uh, talking about health and illness. How important are those topics? Oh my gosh, they're everything. Um, you know, I work in a hospital, so I see a, a very, very large variety of patients every, I just came off a shift last night and I had people as young as 18. I had people as old as 93. I had doctors, residents, interns, everyone to work with nurses. And it's a universe of complications. So I encourage people to get to know what this universe looks like. And I encourage people to 
first know yourself, as we already talked about in chapter one, and then know what your goals of care are. So as a patient, you know what it is you want to do. I mean, some people say, oh, I've got to do this. and I've got to do that because the doctor told me. Mm. And I say, you know what? It may not be what you want. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Is this really how you want to uh, conduct your life? And they go, no. <laughs> I go, well, maybe you want to question that. Um, and so we we just define the condition. We say what it is we want to have done, when, which is one of the reasons the AD advanced directive and the pulse form and some of the other forms are so important because once you know your goals of care, then you match that to your advanced directive. Mm. So when you cannot speak, the person that's your agent will speak for you and they know exactly what it is you want. So, you know, sometimes we want timelines. We you know, we want to tell them, you know, I want to know if I'm going to be around in six months kind of thing. The doctor can't generally answer that. But you can say, these are the things I want to have at end of life. You know, I want my family around me. I want, um, you know, I want music. I want whatever scriptures or, or holy readings. I want to be here. I want to have laughs. I want to have a joke fest, whatever it is. Um, but with that, we also need to know the cast of characters. And I say that because I used to be in theater. So, you know, do we know what a doctor, do we know what a hospitalist is? Do we know what a physician assistant? So I've done this glossary and the glossary runs for about 15 pages. So you get a pretty <laughs> picture of who's on the cast of characters on your yeah. stage. And then you know who you're talking to. For instance, most people don't know what a case manager does. And they are classic issues because if you're about to be discharged and you're going into a SNF or a skilled nursing facility, that case manager is going to be a master broker for you because they're going to give you that list and you're going to have to figure out what to do. And you may only have a day, but you can talk with them and say, you know, I need more than a day. I may need to stay a little longer so my family can figure this out. Those are the kinds of things that we do for self-advocacy. And I have been through many, many cases where a person has sat in bed for five or six days. The doctors can't agree. And they're looking at the linoleum and saying, what's life about, you know? Mm. So I encourage them to get to the omnibudsman, to get to someone who's a third party and say, we have to move this along. It's costing, you know, 35000 a day for Medicare or someone or 100000 And I'm sitting here and they can't agree. I need to get this done. And usually once we've made that move to the omnibudsman or the case manager, the operation gets done because they finally have to move. So that's the kind of self-advocacy I encourage people to think about. And then also the same thing with the medical bill. You know, when you're about to do a huge surgery or you're about to do immunotherapy or something, which is around $125,000 now, and you're not covered, who's going to pay for that? And how are you going to handle that? So I encourage people to think ahead of the procedure so they know exactly what to expect. Because the last thing you want is a bill that you can't pay. And this is one of the reasons why... Um, the single biggest reason people file for bankruptcy is medical expenses. Mm. And you know that the medical profession isn't going to wait for you. They usually give you to a credit agency if you don't pay the bill at the time of the surgery, which is no fun. You know, I mean, these are people that are just after the bill and the, and the cost. They really don't care too much about your situation or the fact that you're not working. And so it becomes a very, very adversarial situation. So I encourage people to stand up for themselves to find out what it's going to cost, to make sure they know exactly what's going to happen. And it's something they really want to happen. Um, so that's that's a big deal about number chapter three. Yeah. And I do encourage people to 
um, you know, get their health documents in order. So the first one and the most important is your advanced directive. I call this the permission slip because this is the, the piece that says, these are the people that are gonna speak for me. These are the things that I will allow to happen to my body. This is the possibility that I will be an organ donor and this is my primary physician. And then occasionally you'll have some other things in there like, you know, I wanna sign this person to do any funeral arrangements if indeed I do die. And these are some of the other nuances, so you can write notes. But that is a key piece. And I can tell you, I have saved many a patient from uh, surgeries and things that were unnecessary because it was in their document that they didn't want those kind of things. Um, also, then, I, I encourage people that if they're near end of life, or maybe not, not even that, to sign a post, which is the physician-ordered life-sustaining treatment, hmm. the one-page pink document. And it's a very important document because if you're home and the EMTs come, that's the first thing they're looking for. They want to know what emergency measures they can do to save your life if that is your choice. And so that uh, post is very important, along with the HIPAA. Uh, the HIPAA is the authorization form that gives people outside of your immediate family permission to then see your medical records. And so those are three really important forms, the advanced directive, the post, and the HIPAA. Um, I have a little story about HIPAA because my son went to college and he was over 18 and he had an emergency surgery and I called the hospital and I couldn't get a hold of him. I was not allowed to talk to him because there was no HIPAA form signed. Mm. So you can imagine I was absolutely over the over the moon uh, upset and I finally got a hold of my uncle who was a doctor at that hospital, thank goodness. He was able to get to my son and I was able to find out what his condition was. But without him, I would not have known because once a child is 18, warning to all college student parents, once a child is 18, they, uh, they have the power to remain anonymous and not share any information unless they sign that HIPAA. So it's a good thing to think about. As people go through end of life transitions, there's a lot of talk about putting your house in order. Mm. And many people don't even have an idea what does that even look like. But <sighs> we, you know, we are grateful that you addressed that topic in your book. Could you touch yeah. a little bit on that? I sure will. I think this is probably the core of the book, and it's one of the reasons why it's in the middle, because it's so important. It's really simply organizing your affairs, both legal and financial, so that when you die, your heirs don't have to go on a treasure hunt, as I call it. So you're creating an archive of financial and legal information. And really, it's, it's not that hard because many of you already have, you know, all these papers. You just haven't organized them in such a way to make sense. So I encourage people to kind of use a checklist. And then in the book, it's very simple. It talks about financial information. So we begin with assets and liabilities, what you own and what you owe, um, and insurance policies, things like life insurance and long-term care and auto and homeowners, all those things that we pay premiums for and we hope we never have to use, but if we do, they'll know where those are located. Then additional income sources, maybe you're on social security or you have a pension plan or you have wages or an employment account. That's another area that we wanna address. And retirement plans, or maybe something like a defined benefit plan that pays over a certain amount of time, and when you die, it goes to your heirs and so on. Um, most people know what an IRA is or a Roth IRA, and you may want to know a little bit more about the taxation on those. Roths generally come out non-taxable. 
And then after death arrangements, you know, this is important because a lot of people don't know that maybe you want to be cremated and they're thinking, no, we want to do forest lawn with $25,000 casket and put you on the hill and so on. When all you want is a cremation. So you need to let people know what it is you want. And if there's anything specific you want at the memorial, for me, it better be a bagpiper and a black singer. That's me. Okay. So <laughs> that's what I want. But for other people, it may be, you know, you want a certain organ piece or you want certain things that have meaning for you. And so you then note that for your memorial. And maybe you are also looking at organ donation or you want to have an eco burial. You want to be buried in the shroud and become part of a forest. I mean, there's so many different ways that people are now deciding how they want to die. So important that you write those things down. And if you've made plans, include those plans in there. You might have a prepaid plan. I generally don't encourage that because there's not always reciprocity between the states. But certainly write down your plan and then perhaps make uh, provision in terms of finances for it. And uh, outstanding debts and regular ongoing bills. You know, we have auto pays for a lot of things and they're going to continue to auto pay unless you tell them to stop them. And then tax documents, very important to keep at least seven years of tax documents. Um, so if there's any question or there's ways to um, reduce the tax bill, you'll have records for that. That kind of settles the financial docs. And you may have other things that you want to put in there, maybe debts, personal debts and things of that sort. But that should be in one file. And then the second one would be your legal and estate information. You need, you may have a will, you may have a trust document. Let me say, if you don't have either one of these, you will die what we call interstate, which means the state will make a will for you. And it may be with people you don't want to get your belongings. So I encourage everyone to get at least a will. And if you find that a trust is a, a helpful document also to do that. Um, durable power of attorney for finances. Most of the time that's included in your trust document, but that will help someone to pay your bills in the event that you're unable to do that. Durable power of attorney for healthcare. We've already talked about that. That's our advanced directive and the HIPAA and the Pulse. And then other information that's helpful, if you've been part of the military, the DD-214 form is very important as an honorable discharge. So then you have the opportunity to be buried in a military cemetery at no cost, and you're paid a certain amount of money uh, to help with that. It's really very important you have that handy. And then personal wishes and gifts. Maybe you have gifts and things like my grandmother did and you want to roll around in a U-Haul and get them out to people. Pets. I think this is the most neglected area. People forget that pets are family and you want to make provision, you know, write down the, the veterinarian, write down how they eat and what food they need and special things about that pet. Because if you're not there, who's going to take care of them? And is there someone you've designated for that? There actually are pet trusts. Yes, indeed. We have you know, we have people trust. Now we have pet trust. You can write up a legal document for your pet. Um, I also encourage original documents to be kept in your safety deposit box or in your bank, wherever you find most convenient. You have a deed to your house. If you have, uh, you know, pink slip to your car, things that are of permanent nature that are legal, you want to keep those separate in a very safe place, a firebox or something that would be helpful. And then this is probably the most important thing I can tell you. Where are you going to put your passwords, your IDs, your, you know, pins, your codes? Make sure that those are separate from your financial information or someone who finds them might be able to get into your, your personal matters. So keep them separate. I usually say 
possibly in the safety deposit box with a note to your heirs on how to get in there. So that's kind of the, the overview, if you will, of your inventory. And you may have some other things like some specific um, you know, requests. I want to make sure that this is done. And this is, you clean out my closet, save my Santa Claus suit. I don't know. I mean, all these crazy things that people say. But you want to have your personal information available to your heirs and not try to um, give them the guessing game. I, I have a list of the original documents, things like citizenship papers or contracts or copyrights or divorce records, death certificates, all of these things are the legal documents you want in a safety deposit box, a fireproof safety deposit box. And I think that pretty much sums it up. This is the one that people say, oh my gosh, it's too much work. But you know, most people have a lot of these things already. They just haven't organized them. So I encourage people to find a binder or you know, scan them into a, a flash drive or in the cloud or whatever, and let your heir, your executor, whoever that person's going to be, know where it's located. And once they know where it's located, you're good to go. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Botright. As I listen to you talk, I see, you know, like I said during the break, you're like a fountain of wisdom. <laughs> and this book is, I see that it is a book that everybody must have because there's a lot of knowledge in there. I feel like this, when you were writing this, it was more than a book. It feels like a legacy. It's like Mm -hmm. that work, that, you know, an incredible work of life. How do Mm -hmm. you feel about that? I think that's a good way to say it. It is a legacy. I've told my children that when I die, I just hope everybody gets a copy of this because (laughs) they're going to be ready. Believe me, they know exactly where the book is and where the keys to the safety deposit box are and everything. So I'm, I'm living that legacy. And I didn't mention this, but my husband, bless his heart, died um, just eight weeks ago. So I was able to go through all of this very quickly. Um, and I knew that a big part of that was the fact that I I wrote the book. You know, when people said, how do you do this? I said, I wrote the book. Yeah. So I didn't have the trauma that most people have where they have to start from ground zero. And that's, I think, the legacy I want to leave for people is that if they get this work done, they're not going through the double grief of having to find all of these pe- these papers. You know, they can spend the time doing the appropriate grieving for the one they love. And this will be kind of an auxiliary piece. So, um, yeah, there is a legacy here uh, with my life and all the things that I've gone through and the things that I've experienced and certified financial planner and ministry and chaplaincy and so on. It's all in this book. And that's why I'm excited for others to read it. You said your husband just died eight weeks ago? Yes. Mm-hmm. How are you dealing with the loss? I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. I'm doing okay, Saul. Thank you for asking. You know, it was it was a very slow decline because it was Alzheimer's. And so for the last two and a half, three years, 
in many ways, I feel that I was just watching him die. And I knew that the time would come when I wouldn't have him anymore. So I prepared my heart well in advance. It's what we call anticipatory grief mm-hmm. and was able to just kind of watch and be and be present and take care of him. Um, and so I, I think it's true that when you get the Alzheimer's diagnosis, that's the first death because you know he will never be the same. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. the second death occurs when the actual physical death comes. And so when the physical death came, I really felt a certain release because the intensity of caring for him for those two and a half, three years was was hard. And so I knew that when he died, I would have a certain freedom that I hadn't had during that time of caregiving. But it was a good role for me. And I learned so much and specifically about the needs of an Alzheimer's patient and what dementia looks like and how it progresses. And so that's probably another book coming up. But I would say that uh, it helped me a great deal to, to know that when you love someone, you care for them. And so for me, that was that was that was my 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 job. That was my my work was to make sure that he had a good death. And he did a very peaceful death. And so I have no guilt or feelings like I didn't do the right thing. I worked my tail off and he had all the comforts he needed and he he knew that I was there. So for me, that's that's everything. Mm-hmm. Really, thank you for honoring us. Um, thank you for being with us and allowing yourself to be part of this project. I've been sitting here for three years. I've talked to a lot of people. And to me, you're one of the most impressive people, full of mm-hmm. wisdom. And I hope many people you know, get to listen to this episode, but also read your book and probably even invite you to speak at some of the events. Um, yeah. what, what are your final thoughts? I think my final thoughts are to um, take time, that this is not a sprint, this is a marathon, and that you need to you know, do the inventories and do everything else, but take time to be who you are and not get so wrapped up in this. I think the, the, the hard thought, hard part is when people are not prepared and they have to do everything at once and it's very stressful. If you take the time now to start organizing your life and making it turnkey for the next generation when they find these things, then I think you've done everyone a service. You feel that you've left a legacy and they have a really wonderful roadmap to follow. And for me, that's everything. I'm, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to write this and share it with people because I know it will make a difference in their life. Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. Uh Call me anytime. Amen. Blessings to you. Okay, thank you. That was Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Botwright. Her book is The Last Things We Talk About, Your Guide to End-of-Life Transitions. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.